This is The Black Artist Project, an interview format podcast that delivers content on contemporary Black art history and visual culture, specifically focusing on Black artists across artistic disciplines with active practices in Rhode Island. This activity is made possible in part by a grant from the Rhode Island State Council on the Arts through an appropriation by the Rhode Island General Assembly and a grant from the National Endowment for the Arts. Becky Davis identifies as a daughter, mother, American, Southern expat, and Black woman. Her creative practice explores the politics of representation, commemoration, and monuments, both structural and cultural. Here is our conversation. Thank you so much for the invitation to sit in conversation with you and the invitation to share a check-in today. I think a lot about how exhausting it is just to exist in this place and try to do work to make things better because white supremacy doesn't sleep. Uh, And it feels like as much as we do, like it's never enough. But at the same time, I feel that it's very important for us to take care of ourselves and focus on taking care of one another because that's the only way we're going to get through this. Thank you for sharing that. And I think you're right. I mean, we're in a moment where you know, self-care is a buzzword and people are throwing it around. And I think shifting it from its original intentions in ways that are unexpected, but at the same time, it's the only way to you know, really ground yourself is to constantly be in conversation with what you're feeling about current events and having space to really check out if you need to. So maybe the check-in is a check-out. Right. Yeah, I love that. I think it has to be. It has to be because a, a burnout is real, especially after, you know, what we were coming through last year and, you know, with folks working so hard to make real change. And and there was, a you know, a whole lot of optimism coming out of that. But then just to see the way things have started to roll back so quickly. But I also have hope that, you know, there are a lot of people that are still in it and doing great work and focusing on healing, not only for themselves, but for their communities and moving forward. Do you find yourself sort of reverting into uh, something that I sort of situate in Afro-pessimism? I know you're saying that, you know, things are quickly reacclimating or, or going back to normal, but you've been someone who has been, you know, conversant with how America has you know, falsely historicized itself for a while now, like throughout your whole practice. So do you find in these moments, you know, you're justified or affirmed in a very negative way, if you will, or or is it something that you're grappling with having to think through these sorts of historical events as they're happening in real time? I feel that I'm certainly grappling with them and that that's something that doesn't go away. There's an understanding that we have to be honest with ourselves, not only about the past, but the stories that we've told about the past that perpetuates the same behavior over and over again and allows for these things to keep happening. 
And unless we're honest about how we situate ourselves in relation to the past, how we mythologize our stories, they're never going to improve unless we're real about that. That's the first piece. The second piece, though, is that I'm really trying hard not to fall into a spiral of of pessimism because I, I think it's equally as important to visualize the future. Like as we're grappling with the past, we're simultaneously building the future in the way we in the everyday behaviors, like that the everyday choices that we make in the present. At the end of the day, there has to be a balance, a balance of, of honesty, but also of hope and of, of visualizing what we want to move towards and making a path to move that way. All right. So for those who are unfamiliar with your work, could you chart a course for us? So you're from Columbus, Georgia, but you now live in Wakefield, Rhode Island. How did you come to call Rhode Island home, if you do call it home? Yes, I was born in Columbus, Georgia. I grew up a military brat and in a very religious family. And that has deeply informed my practice, the choices I make, the references I use, and the things that I think about. In 2012, my partner got a job here in Rhode Island. And so we moved up here together. And that's how Rhode Island became home. (laughs) So is there anything in the context of Rhode Island that has changed your work or is now influencing you to work in a different way? Yes, uh, a couple of things. The first thing that comes to mind is that um, just Rhode Island as a place is so rich in its creative community. There are so many inspiring artists and people here that are working at the intersection of art and activism and really thinking deeply about community care. And that's really inspiring. I think of folks like Fadik Kumba, like Shea Rivera Rios, like Jenea Kizzy, just really inspiring folks and folks who are deeply committed to um, community and also to building relationships. But it's changed my work in that it's, it's just a very rich well to draw from. Um, I really enjoy working uh, in collaboration and in community with other folks. Uh, and so at the same time that, you know, I really like my personal practice and there are some things that, you know, I just kind of have to grapple with through my personal practice in regards to healing, uh, but there's a different kind of of care and a different kind of, you know, fulfillment that I get from working in community with other folks. So um, that's one thing. (laughs) Another thing about Rhode Island that's changed my work is the understanding that in learning about the history of slavery in Rhode Island and the connection between Rhode Island industry and the international slave trade, and also the relationship between Rhode Island industry and its support and, you know, culpability in the institution of slavery in the United States. 
it's made me understand something that I never understood before, which was that the entire nation was complicit in slavery and that the North is not free from guilt. The North is just as responsible for slavery and this international slave trade as the South was. I think that over time, folks started to demonize the South for, you know, their relationship just because it was much more clear. But understanding how the North supported and benefited from both institutions gave me a completely different understanding of American history and the importance of just being responsible uh, for one's actions. I hear that. I mean, finding out some uncomfortable truths in terms of how the North has perceived itself has definitely been an eye-opener. One thing that I recently became aware of is that abolitionists weren't anti-racist, you know, entirely. So that one-to-one sort of relationship doesn't exist, right? Because there were abolitionists who were sort of anti-slavery, but only because they didn't want... African people in the United States. They wanted people to leave. You know, it was steeped in this imperial way of controlling bodies that then gets rehashed as white benevolence that is, you know, the the mythology of abolition, right? So those sorts of things, I think you're right, that the North has painted itself as this beacon of, I don't know, of liberalness in, in a, a number of ways, including, you know, during enslavement and now but we see that as you say the entire country is is complicit when did you know you wanted to be an artist or when did you feel most like an artist oh that's that's interesting I feel like I've always been an artist I've always had the desire to create I've always liked to use my hands to make things I've always thought creatively But I didn't think of art as something that I wanted to do or spend my life doing until high school. When I went to college, I wasn't exactly encouraged to go into art. I was encouraged to sort of use that sort of creative mentality. But I actually went to school initially in architecture. But the school that I went to, they had like a dual enrollment program for architecture with Georgia Tech. And they canceled it that semester. So I had to make a new choice as to what my major was going to be. And I decided at that moment that I wanted to be an artist. Yeah, so, you know, being from Georgia and being from a Southern family, which you reference in your work, did you did you find that your family was supportive when you first switched majors or did they understand what you were doing? Um, no, they didn't. You know, I think that, Okay, let me back up. My great grandmother was a maid and she worked as a maid to put my grandmother through private school and high school and so that she could go to college. Before my grandmother finished college, she married a man who was in the military. And every generation after my grandfather has had a service member in it. My mom served, my dad was in the service, uncle my brother, cousin, myself, actually. So having military service in the family was something that was ingrained in us, as well as the need, the necessity for education. Education was 
always really sort of ingrained in us as the key to survival and not just any kind of education, but, you know, education with the intent of enhancing your life and enhancing access to safety. And so art was not really seen as a subject that could do that. Now my family is incredibly supportive and I couldn't hope for more from them, but I think it, that it took some time for them to understand that, that art could be, that art could be a vocation that, that supported me in a way that was not only, you know, fulfilling to me personally and spiritually, but also financially. Yeah. Yeah. I never knew you were in the service that sort of, some of what you said is making sense in terms of what your practice has shown to be interventions in certain spaces. So you're at Mount Holyoke, which which is a, a space of higher learning as an artist in residence. You are known to you know partner with libraries in and around the city and also the museums in the city. So having that sort of uh, relationship to education that was instilled in you from your family sort of shows up now, you know, your current practice. You know, once my parents uh, left the service, they both became educators. My mother became a science teacher and taught high school science until she retired a few years back. My dad was also an educator, a teacher at first, and then he moved into administration. To switch gears a, a bit, thinking about In the Shadow of Dixie and Whose Name is Written Water, where you're using your presence to narrativize history. When did you decide to use your body as an intervention in your practice? And do you consider yourself a performance artist or an artist who works in performance? That's a great question. So I think of myself as an artist who works in performance. I started using my body as a site for intervention probably in 2017, At the time I was in grad school and I was working on my thesis project, which was an experimental documentary titled Whose Name Was Written Water. This video was structured as an imagined conversation between me and my fourth great grandmother, Charity Ann. And water was considered the medium that connected us through time and space. So in this video, there's a lot of sort of ambient shots of landscapes interspersed with like performative actions by myself mostly. Uh, And so even though I didn't understand it as a performance at the time, I was literally performing for the camera. Right after making that video, I applied for a fellowship at the Providence Public Library And they were actually looking for someone to create a performance uh, dealing with hair. At the time, I didn't consider myself uh, an artist that worked in performance or a performance artist. But I had an idea for a performance because of some personal experience that had recently happened to me. Microaggression where I was in a place that I considered to be a safe space. And someone touched my hair without my consent. And so I wrote a performance or constructed a performance structured around that. And that was the beginning of me using my body as a site for intervention. And I 
really look to artists like Adrian Piper and Carrie Mae Weems as a source of inspiration for that. I think by inserting myself into a space and using my body, it becomes a bridge where other folks can sort of project their or understand their personal relationship to things that they may not have experience in. I think that it's easier to to empathize with something that's unfamiliar if there's a window through someone's personal experience, if you build a relationship with a person, even if it's something as simple as an energy exchange, it can become a really sort of rich site for, for understanding and for empathy. And something you said about your inspirations reminded me of the way in which Care Mae Williams has been described as sort of history's ghost or history's intercessor. And I'm wondering if you feel that you are almost as if a specter watching history, or do you feel more actively participatory in the interventions that you were responding to, to or the historical events that you're responding to? So what is your relationship in that sense to the stories that you're reviving for your audience? Mm. So I'm reminded of Toni Morrison and her idea of using water as a metaphor for remembering. I often say that, you know, water exists simultaneously in the past, present, and future. Like there's no separation between those times, like when you're dealing with water and the same water that's on earth that we ingest, that we, that we cleanse with, that we use to nourish ourselves is the same water that nourished and flowed through our ancestors. There's just no separation. So I don't see myself as like a specter or someone who's like standing on the outside and looking back or looking in. I see it all existing at the same time, the past, present, and future simultaneous, like at the same time that I'm witnessing the past, I'm understanding its impact on the present, and I'm trying to make decisions in my life that can help bring about a better future. Yeah, that's that's really intense, actually. And it reminds me, I'm always talking about In the Wake by Christina Sharp, as many academics do because of its brilliance and how Professor Sharp sort of situates the afterlives of slavery as collapsible time or time that has collapsed, actually. So that you're always, as a person of African descent, living in these very sort of distorted temporalities because of the immensity of the transatlantic slave trade. So you can't escape the past. You know, you can't escape your your future even because of its relationship to the past. And so it's it's almost overwhelming at all times, right? Because you're having to navigate so many aspects of this cataclysmic catastrophe that just sort of ripples throughout the ages, right? It's hard to really parse through sometimes how to even begin to understand what happened, right? And um, now with, you know, Nicole Hannah-Jones, she I was watching her promote the 1619 Project, but the book form on The View, and she was 
immensely patient with some of the questions they were asking and really thinking about how it is to, you know, quote unquote, market the book to naysayers or people who are pushing back against critical race theory in in various ways. And one thing she said is that basically the burden is on people to really want to know this history or to really think about how the United States doesn't want to know its own history and in ways that are becoming more evident as we, you know, have discussed at the beginning of this conversation. And I'm wondering, how do you course correct in times like this? Do you feel like you make work in response to your frustrations of having to deal with personal and and systemic acts of racism that it, that are affecting you and your family or do you not put that in the work and you sort of try not to internalize that and, and do something else with it i mean how do you how do you deal with it oh that's um yeah i think both and in some cases the only way for me to really respond to it is to make work about it so um let me back up there's like a number of of different ways that I engage. I think that it's important to continue doing the work, to continue showing up in spaces that need support and that need for folks to show up to, like staying involved in local politics for one. It can be incredibly draining. It can be very difficult to continuously like show up, but inevitably like when folks stop showing up is when things start to get rolled back. You can never get complacent. <laughs> so I think that it's important for me to take breaks and for me to prioritize care, but it's also important to, to stay vigilant. <laughs> and so trying to find balance is something that's really important to me right now. Likewise, one of the ways that I find balance is thinking about these things and synthesizing them into my work. What has been the most difficult project you've done and the most rewarding one? Ooh. (laughs) So probably in the shadow of Dixie. So to give you a little context for folks who may not be familiar with the project, I went to the eight cities around Georgia that I once called home and held space on monuments, Confederate monuments that were in highly conspicuous public spaces. Most of them were in the heart of downtown areas or in front of courthouses, in front of city halls. I held space in the shadow of each monument and engaged in a ritual. The first part of the ritual was to photograph the site, to document the site. The second part of the ritual was to surveil myself, so to set up cameras to record the experience, not only for posterity, but also for my safety, because I didn't know what I was going to encounter. In several of the places, there had been Klan rallies nearby in recent weeks. And then the third part of the ritual was to write a series of postcards to each politician with jurisdiction over that space. Because in Georgia then, and still uh, even now, it is illegal to move remove, conceal, or uh, modify a existing monument. And the law actually makes concessions. It doesn't, it does protect all monuments, but it states specifically Confederate monuments. So 
the idea behind this project was, first of all, to confront my past and my personal relationship to these sites. And secondly, to draw attention to just pointing out the danger and the destructiveness of having these sites, these beacons of white supremacy in public space. And so to go back to your question, it was fulfilling because it was cathartic for me to engage with these sites head on in a very personal way, in a very private way. But then also to take the knowledge that I learned in researching these sites and the connections, like the tangible connections that they have to white supremacist activity in those areas, to the, the people that, that were responsible for constructing them and maintaining them, and in some cases, uh, renovating them or restoring them, all had white supremacist ties. <laughs> And so when that initial performance was converted into an, a multimedia installation, the idea was to, to share that research, to get that knowledge out, because I found a lot of people just don't know who the major players were in constructing these monuments. And it's imperative that we know, because it's really telling into like what they actually mean and what their purpose is actually is. And when you know what the purpose is, it's crystal clear that they have no place in our public spaces because they're not for the public. They're for white supremacists. In, in that vein, do you find that there's a threshold to how much you want to and are able to educate a public? Or is it, are you frustrated that you have to do that sort of work? I mean, I know that people are wanting to engage with history and memorials now more than ever. And, but it just seems really draining to have to be the one to put yourself literally in that position to, to channel the knowledge that you think the public should know about public space. You know, what is that for you? I feel conflicted. I personally consider myself a lifelong learner. So I enjoy learning. I enjoy sharing what I learn with others. So I don't have a problem with that necessarily. What I do have a problem with is when folks want to argue with facts or they just don't want to listen. Like they don't want to be open to seeing things in a way that makes them feel uncomfortable. That's trash. And I don't have time for that. <laughs> I'm not here to try to convince folks that not only don't want to be open to seeing things in a different way, but just have no intention of changing and actually think that they're going to convince me that I'm in the wrong or that, you know, they've done their own research and that they know something that I don't. So what's one piece of advice or wisdom that has structured how you approach your art making and the ways you, in which you take up space with your practice? One of the things that I'm currently thinking through is being very intentional about audience and the messages that I'm sending to any given audience and knowing that all things aren't for all people. 
So thinking about audience doesn't just include, you know, how I make the work. It also includes where I show the work. And if the the intended audience will have access to the work in the space that it's shown in. I think it's important for me to also, you know, diversify my own practice. I think that the intended audience for something like uh, In the Shadow of Dixie is not necessarily the intended audience for something like Whose Name Was Written Water. And a lot of work that's just like deeply introspective and sort of grapples with my personal family history and trauma. The intention of that work is to find healing for myself and for my people, for my community. So the audience, who that work is directed to, is completely different from who in the Shadow of Dixie is directed to, which, you know, as I mentioned before, for an audience who may not know why Confederate monuments are bad to begin with, or, you know, may not fully understand, they may think, oh, well, you know, history is history. Or like, (laughs) you can't erase what's happened in the past. The idea of a monument isn't to, it's not a history book. (laughs) It's a structure that communicates power and frameworks of power. It's a covenant with a past community with its future posterity. It's saying, these are our values and we charge you with upholding them. So if our values are white supremacist values, then keeping that monument in place is always going to communicate that. It's never going to change. You can't put a plaque next to it and say that this monument isn't a a beacon to white supremacy because, you know, it's... It is. That's how it was built, why it was built. That's how it functions. That's what it was meant to do. So I, yeah, I think it's important for us to remember not only intention, but also how intention informs impact when we're thinking about not just monuments, but also art and and how the places that we view these things, how the place that's surrounding a monument or the place that an artwork is is shown or exhibited undergirds the meaning behind it. Yeah, and I would add not only monuments and art, but also language. You know, the Thanksgiving holiday is coming up and Thanksgiving is being reclassified, if you will, as Indigenous People's Day. So what are your thoughts about those acts of restitution that have to do with reclaiming something from its historical negligence, if you will? It's, it's genocide of an entire community, entire communities. Like what, what are your thoughts about language in this conversation? Oh, language matters. Language informs the way we remember things. They inform our relationship to, you know, to past events. It also, language also informs our behavior. And it's very complicated. I, when you grow up with um, certain sort of values that are instilled in you, you know, questioning those and thinking about them critically can be uncomfortable. 
But in order to transform, in order to evolve, we have to engage in discomfort. I mean, it's just part of life. I think it it's incredibly important for us to understand what our behaviors and our traditions mean, what they're rooted in, and to, you know, adjust our our thoughts and our willingness to engage in them accordingly. For Thanksgiving in particular, it's even, it's difficult for me to even say that word. You know, like a lot of folks, I grew up with very fond memories of waking up in the morning and watching the parade and smelling the turkey and watching my great-grandma cook greens um, and then sharing a meal with my family and everyone sitting around the table and there being wonderful conversations. But as an adult, not only understanding the violence and the genocide that is celebrated by the day in theory, but also the understanding of, of how it became a national holiday, right? You know, at the end of the Civil War, when there's all of this division in the country, there's, you know, one woman, a white woman that writes a column and starts, basically starts a one-person crusade to establish Thanksgiving, which was, you know, more of like a kind of a local holiday and not very, not widely observed. She appeals to folks through a magazine, through a magazine column, and appeals directly to President Lincoln about creating this holiday to bring families back together. And so thinking about those two things, right, makes me deeply critical of the intention. Not only does the holiday itself support a false narrative about indigenous and colonial relationships and a mythology about, you know, what it means to, to be an American and be in relationship with indigenous communities. But it was also used as like a band-aid solution to erase accountability from the Confederacy about the violence that happened during the Civil War. And so what do we need that for? We don't. We don't. Yes, unity is important. Yes, having traditions is important. But we should center traditions that are focused in actual community care and actual, I don't know, like reconciliation and care and love for one another. Something constructive outside of what we've known it to be. And we, I mean, sort of, you know, I don't want to clump us with Americans, but we as a, a nation have this just tendency to really steep ourselves in erasure that seems almost like we can't escape the pathology. Or there's this way in which reconciliation could never happen because, you know, simply because that's not the function of the narrative to begin with or the narratives that we're telling ourselves to begin with. So 
you know, I was really intrigued by it was a meme actually about daylight savings time or something about student loans about, you know, we just decided to, you know, turn back the clock an hour and everybody was like, okay, but we can't unmake the pathology of racism in this country or people are very adamant that this is us or this is our history as if liberation can't have us imagine different futures for ourselves. And just with the renaming of Thanksgiving to something that is potentially more restorative, even though it doesn't do, um, you know, that work entirely, right? It can never restore what has been lost in terms of all of the communities that were displaced in this country, the colonial relations that you mentioned. It just feels like yeah, the possibility is to fix things. And we could totally do that, but it's hard to imagine it. I definitely get that. It is hard to imagine it happening. But I think that you're absolutely right in saying that language is the first step to that. Also, what I was getting at in a very sort of roundabout, convoluted way was that it's going to take more than language. It has to just take a complete sort of reset, restructuring in how we think. And that has to be rooted in honesty about these stories, these mythologies that we're telling ourselves, because we're steeped in them. Like I'm still unpacking, you know, there are just so many things, (laughs) you know, as a young adult, even into like well into my 30s, you know, I thought that I had gained all of this knowledge and that, you know, I was learning so many things and that you know, I was just much more wise than I had been in my youth. But after turning 40, I felt like I didn't know anything. <laughs> like that everything that I knew was a lie. <laughs> and I had to sort of read like, what do you do at that point? Like, <laughs> you just have to rebuild. My last uh, trip before the pandemic, uh, I went to Spain. And in places like Madrid and Barcelona, where there's all of these layers of history. I understood, it dawned on me, like going in Madrid, we were in the palace, uh, the presidential palace, but also in visiting the cathedrals, how colonialism and the story, like the mythology of colonialism is so present in the art, in the statues, in the frescoes, in the like in the paintings there are these murals in the presidential palace of just the subjectivity of of indigenous peoples in the colonies and just the relationships of conquistadors to you know folks in other parts of the world and how that was how that was depicted in these paintings supports a very like paternalistic idea. And the same sort of rhetoric was super present in cathedrals. I literally saw like, it was like a fresco in a cathedral, a conquistador with his horse trampling an indigenous person. Just witnessing that made me think about how similar stories are told in our places of of cultural significance in places like Washington, D.C. 
in like the Smithsonian museums, also like in cathedrals here. And in order to really think about that, in order to really understand how that's affected us and how it's sort of, how it's embedded itself in our psyches and the way we behave, we have to be deeply critical of our relationship to these stories. And that's, that's hard. It's not something that's easy and it's not something that will happen overnight, but it's something that's imperative. If we do not do that, we cannot make things better. We cannot find reconciliation without honesty. That's true. Thank you, Becky. Thank you, Anita. <laughs> this is, I, it's been such an enlightening conversation. I mean, it's always a joy to, to speak to you and to, to have this particular conversation at this particular time. It means a lot. Thanks. This episode was sponsored by the Rhode Island State Council on the Arts and was edited by me, Alex Hainsworth. Thank you to the RISD Museum for housing this podcast on their website, and a special thank you to Brendan Campbell, Jeremy Radke, Deborah Clemens, and Sarah Gans Blythe for additional support. Thank you also to Coma Studio for the song you can hear in the beginning and the end of this podcast. Thank you for listening. <laughs>